scripture. Of course, now you have it printed. Let's all stand as we read God's word together, starting at verse 1 through verse 16. The Bible says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, enduring, I mean, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, it didn't say in you guys. See, that's a southerner that's writing, in you all. That's a good southern expression there. The Apostle Paul was a good southerner. A rebel at heart. Uh, Verse 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom, home, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, and we'll get right into the message. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit of God, that you take the word of God and you quicken it. You make it alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so speak to our humble hearts. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Christ as their personal Savior, they do not know heaven as their eternal home, oh, that today, that today would be their day of salvation. And I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, in the 8.30 service, uh, that's always the guinea pig where I preach a sermon and see how it's going to work out. I found out I ran out of time. And so there's a few things I'm going to throw out. One is I had a really good mediocre joke I was going to tell because our pastor always starts with a joke. His are always good. Mine are at best mediocre. And so I'm throwing that out. I gave you a little history on the book of Ephesus and Paul's experience there and the meaning of it and why he loved that city. I'm throwing that out. So we're going to jump into verse 1, if you will. And in verse 1, we're going to see that a prisoner writes from Rome. The Bible says, I, uh, a prisoner. Uh, And so he is mentioning right there from the start that he is a prisoner of the Lord. This is the Apostle Paul that's writing, and he is writing from Rome to Ephesus, a city he loved, spent three years there. And in every one of his epistles, there's doctrinal, and then there's practical Christian living. Remember, the God called uh, Saul of Tarsus, he became Paul the Apostle, he wrote half the New Testament. That's pretty impressive right there. God used him. And God used him there at Ephesus as well to get the gospel throughout all of Asia. He says, a prisoner of the Lord, and he's writing from a jail cell. And then he has his prayer for the saints to walk worthy. He says, I beseech thee that you walk worthy. 
beseech is another word for uh, beg or prayer. Uh, it's the word we use when we pray. It's translated prayer as well. Prayer is not just asking. Prayer is begging. It's saying, Lord, I got to have this. Lord, I need this. Lord, please, please, Lord. Uh, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Uh, you don't want your prayer just to be nonchalant, just, uh, Lord, uh, give me this, 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 go through a list. Put your heart and soul into that because you are beseeching, you are begging, you're pleading with the Lord, please, please, Lord. And most of the times we're praying, it's nothing to do with us. It's all for somebody else, our family, our loved ones, uh, people we know, people we go to church with, others. Prayer and walk worthy. And then he says the profession that demands work. He says of the vocation of which we are called. Now it's interesting the word vocation is also what you and I would call work. Uh, it used to be you'd say, where, where, what is your vocation? Now you'd say, where do you work? But there is a difference between work and vocation. Because a vocation is a work that you feel called to. And there's a big difference there. It's a work that you feel called to. Many of us, no doubt, have had work. But we didn't feel anywhere near called to it. It was just paying bills, right? It was work. But the word vocation is the idea of a work that you've been called to. And see, as a believer, we believe that everywhere God puts us, he puts us there for a purpose. And so that's why we pray about where we should work, because we believe that God has already figured that out. And he has a plan and a pattern for our life. And he has a will for us. And when he places us in a place to work, that becomes more than just work. It is a calling on our life. And you may work in a warehouse or you may drive a truck or you may work in an office or you may pastor a church. But if you're doing what God has called you to do, you're just as important as any preacher, any missionary, an evangelist, anyone else in the kingdom of God. If you are where you are, if you're working at Starbucks making lattes, uh, and that's the will of God for your life, you're there at his calling. It's a vocation, and God places us where he wants us. And so he's talking about that. And then he asks us to walk worthy. Literally, vocation means calling. So the calling to which you are called. Are you walking worthy of the calling, vocation, of which you are called? If God called you to work in a factory, are you walking worthy as his representative in that place? And that is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And so with that in mind, we're going to talk about how to walk worthy. Because that is how the Apostle Paul is addressing the church. That's okay. That's how the Apostle Paul is addressing the church, is to walk worthy. And keep in mind, these are people he loved. These are people he personally grounded in the faith. Night and day with tears, the Bible says in the book of Acts. So, how do we walk worthy? Now, first of all, we want to understand that it has nothing to do with our salvation. We are saved by God's grace, not by our works, right? But as a believer... Having been born again, God has a purpose for every single one of our lives. And we need to find that calling of God on our lives and then walk worthy of that. And that's what we're looking at here this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, walking worthy. And first of all, we see the path of our work, the path, uh, excuse me, of our walk, the path of our walk. And we see that in verses 1 through 6. And since we covered verse 1, we'll start with verse 2. How is it portrayed? How is it portrayed? How does this walk or this path of our walk, what does it look like? How is it portrayed? Well, uh, verses 2 and 3 will tell us that, how it is portrayed. What will it look like if we're walking worthy of the vocation to which we were called? Well, 
I borrowed some things from Vincent's word studies. He was an expert on the Greek language. I took two years of it. That made me a novice. (laughs) And I took it so long ago, I forgot most all of it. But I do know Alpha and I know Omega. And all the rest in between, I'll let someone else pronounce. But Vincent says, all lowliness, not a self-abasement that the Greeks understood, but a view of ourselves as sinners before God and man, a lowliness born of reality. In other words, the Greeks saw lowliness as someone who mentally said, I'm going to act lowly. And, And so they would act lowly. But the Christian life is not about acting. It's not about pretense. It's not about... Uh, putting on a show. Uh, So lowliness is a matter of the heart. It is seeing us as God sees us. We know we are sinners saved by God's grace. Amen. But we also know we are sinners saved by God's grace, so we don't puff up. You see, as believers, we realize this, anything good in us, God put there. Amen. If there's anything good to say about us, That's not from us. Paul said it this way. I know that in me that is in my flesh (laughs) dwelleth no good thing. But if there's something good in me, don't, don't give the credit to me. Give the credit to God because he put it there. And so that's exactly what he's saying there. It's portrayed in lowliness and in meekness. Now, the pre-Christian meaning of the word meekness had two general characteristics. First, it expressed an outward conduct. And secondly, it uh, contemplated relationship to men only. So meekness had to do with what you see on the outside and how I impressed you looking at my outside. But the Christian meaning... Because of Christ, it means, it describes an inward quality, and it is related primarily not to you and me, but to me and God. See, meekness is not a pretense I put on so you see me being meek. No, meekness is a quality that Christ puts in his children. Christ puts in us. And we're not trying to be meek to each other. We're trying to be meek before God. And that's an inward quality. That has nothing to do with external show or what we do or what we dress like, what we look like, what we act like, what we talk like. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with our heart's relationship with God. And if we are truly meek with God, we'll have no problem with other people. But it begins in the heart with God. And then long-suffering Bishop Ellicott said, The brave patience which with the Christian contends against the various hindrances, persecutions, and temptations that befall him in his conflict with the inward and outward world. In other words, long-suffering is that ability to go through great trials, great persecution, great difficulties, and we can get through it and suffer through it. Because we're confident that whatever's going on in our life has been filtered by the hand of God. I know this morning in this room there's people taking cancer treatments. I know there's people in this room who are suffering all type of physical things. But what gets us through it is we know that whatever has come to our life has been filtered through the hands of God. All the trials you've been through, all the trials going through, whether it be your marriage or your kids or your grandkids or all the relationships we have in life, all the suffering that we go through in life, we become long-suffering because we know there's a God who knows best and a God that we trust and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the call according to his purpose. We don't understand it, but we'll understand it better by and by. Amen? And so there will be a day where we do, so we can long suffer through that. And then it says forbearing one another. 
It means to bear up under, to bear up under. Uh, I paraphrase this to mean it means to put up with, put up with, forbear one another. Could we as believers put up with other believers? You know, it's an amazing thing that uh, Christ has forgiven us. And the Bible says we're to love one another as he loved us, as Christ loved us, as Christ forgave us. And so we certainly need to do that. And we need to be in love. And our love is for Christ and for the children of Christ, which is other believers. So we learn to put up with each other. Uh, Not because we're good. Not not because we don't get on each other's nerves. Not because we all think alike. Hey, listen, uh, we're in all different areas of life, all different educations, all different backgrounds, different philosophies. I understand that. I mean, you know, uh, one votes this way, one votes the other way. And that's okay. We're praying for you. But, uh, you know, (laughs) we can't all be right. But we're different. And we're God's children. And he's all working on us. And none of us have arrived. And we're not perfect. So we need to understand that and come in the presence of God. uh, Understanding that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a physical family, and you have a brother you don't agree with. You have sisters you see differently on. But there's one thing about it. You're in the same family. So you can hug them, and you can love them because you're in the same blood, the same family. And here we are. A church is a miracle of Christ. We come from all different walks, all different backgrounds. Everybody thinks, all these Christians, they all believe alike. Oh, you don't know us. No, we don't. But the miracle is we're in the same family. And so we love you when you're right, and we love you when you're wrong, and we love you when you agree with us, and we love you when you disagree us, because we are a family and we operate that way. And that's Christ's plan for his church. And then it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 says, For he, Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And that means that Christ broke down the wall of partition between us and God, a sinful man and a righteous God, a holy God. He broke down the wall so that we could be peace. We could have one. But he also did it between believer and believer. He broke down the wall of partition between this believer and that believer, a Democrat believer and a Republican believer, a a conservative Christian and a not-so-conservative Christian. I mean, Jesus Christ broke down the wall. And that's that's why we can be at peace. That's why we can love each other. Because there are no differences in Christ. And we need to realize that as a church and learn to love each other. Boy, I tell you, uh, nothing could be more critiqued than a church because it's full of imperfect people. Uh, My wife told a a joke uh, on the Best Years Club about a man who was... uh, uh, marooned on an island, and many years passed, and finally a ship came by and rescued him. And they were looking, and they saw a building with a cross on it, and he said, what's that? He said, that's my church. That's where I worship God. And they looked over another, and there was a building with a cross on it, and he said, what's that? He said, oh, that's my old church. They're not friendly. <laughs> and if we're not care- there are no perfect people. And, and so you have to accept that or you'll always be messed up. Uh, our endeavoring is not a manufactured effort on our part. Rather, it is a yielding to the Holy Spirit who hath made both one. So don't, don't come to church like, I, I got to fake it till I make it. I got to love people. Oh, I'm going to try to get along with that person. Uh, they drive me crazy. But let me smile and shake their hand and be very nice and give them a hug. No, sir, it's not a manufactured thing. The Christian life is not about how we manifest ourselves. It's how Christ manifests himself through us. 
It is a manifestation of Christ through us. So how do we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit? Here's how it happens. We simply yield to the Holy Spirit ourselves. And then we love the people He loves. And then we desire to do the things He wants us to do. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit is so important that we get that right thinking. The Christian life is not a performance. It is a product of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Secondly, we ask the question, how is it possible? Verses 4 through 6 explain that, how it's possible. How, we, how do we walk this path? How do we have this, uh, all these things that are portrayed? How does that happen? Well, here's how it's possible. The path we walk is only possible because of our connection to God and the things of God. It's only possible because of God and the things of God. And so he, give, he goes down and he gives a, a list of those. He says, one body. That's the church. Now, the church is a local church and a universal church. This side of heaven, it's a local church. There's one on this corner. There's one on that corner. There's one down the road. There's one on this road. There's one. They're all over the place. And God wants some Christian to find a home in one of them. Now, he does want you to find one that is at least Bible-believing, right? Bible-believing, Bible-preaching. But find your one, and that would be a place where God can use you. One body, one spirit. The same Holy Spirit that lives in you is the same Holy Spirit that lives in me. And so that's how we get along. Because we're part of one family, and the Holy Spirit works in all of our lives. And then one hope, I left that out in my note, but write that in underneath spirit, one hope, the blessed hope. One of these days, we're going to go to heaven, woo, amen, praise the Lord. No more suffering, no more pain, no more anything, no more fighting your old nature, that old man, boom, 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 you beat him down and you find out he rises again next morning, right? You just got to work with that. But one of these days, no more presence of sin in our lives. Praise God for that. One Lord, Jesus Christ, our Savior. The same for every believer. One faith, speaking of the faith in Christ. One baptism, that which portrays the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not saved by baptism, but baptism is a picture in what you trusted to become a Christian. You trusted in the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and that while he did these things, he purchased our salvation. And that's why we follow the Lord in believers' baptism. It's an outward presentation of an inward belief. We're believing in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then one God and Father Above all, I love how it says that, above all and through all and in you all. It's just talking about the fact that God's everywhere. God's everywhere. And he has revealed himself in this blessed book. Aren't we fortunate? It tells us all about him. Now notice in this passage, the Trinity is mentioned. One spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. That's the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, and they are all involved in making the walk of a believer possible. This path that we walk, these things that are supposed to happen in our life. God is the one who empowers that change in us. That's how it's possible. And then verses 7 through 11, we see the provisions of the walk. What does God do to provide for us to accomplish this walk? And in verse 7, he's going to mention two things. He's going to talk about grace, and he's going to talk about gifts. He gives us grace according to the gift. And it's important to realize that the grace that God gives is proportionate to the gifts he gives us. Now, let me explain that. Uh, For instance, when God calls a man to be a pastor, he called me in ministry at 17. Was I equipped? Not at all. I became a pastor at 21. Did I know everything? No. But here's the thing. He gives grace according to the calling. 
And so as a pastor, I had to believe that if God called me, it's his job to equip me. Who God calls, God equips. If he called you to be a missionary, he would equip you to be that. If he called you to work in a factory, he would equip you to do that. If he called you to work in an office, he would equip you to do that. You see, however God calls, God equips. And that's why you should never say, well, I could never teach a Sunday school class. Well, you're forgetting that if God called you to teach a Sunday school class, God would equip you to do it. Don't think you have to have everything in your pocket, everything in your life before God could ever use you. No, so you just have to respond to his calling and it's his job to equip you. I could never sing in the choir. My voice is no good. Well, he can equip you. He can teach you how to lip sync. That's what I would have to do. I mean, honestly. They wouldn't be looking out there. They'd be looking at me if I was singing out loud. But that's, that's God's doing. So the person of the gifts is verses 7 and 8. Christ is the person. The Bible says the gift of Christ. And then it says he gave gifts to men in verse 8. He gave gifts unto men. So the person, who is the one giving the gifts? Well, that's Jesus himself. And he is rightly capable of it because he knows us like no one else. He created us, he redeemed us, and he knows us. So based on his knowledge of us, he grants these gifts into our lives for us to use. And then the power of the giver. It's a wonderful thing that God not only gives gifts, but he always has his power behind the gifts he gives. Remember the Great Commission, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. See, you get the power and then the gifts. So Jesus is always the power, not only the giver of the gifts, but the power behind the gifts. And the Bible says he ascended. That's the resurrection. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The power of the resurrection. What made Jesus the right one to empower our gifts? Because he rose triumphant from the grave. He's our Savior. John 3.13 says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. He was in heaven, he came down to earth, he went back up to heaven, and he ascended up on high. The Bible says he led captivity captive. Now those are those who were held in paradise until Christ's resurrection. And I wish I had time to go into detail and explain how in the Old Testament they died and they went to paradise and Abraham's bosom. And then when Jesus Christ came, he went down to preach victory to them. And then when he ascended, he took the keys of death and hell and unlocked paradise and let the believers go. And that's why they walked around Jerusalem and people saw him. And then he was the firstborn of the resurrection and all of his children followed with him. And ever since the resurrection, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We're not waiting in a paradise now. We're going right to be with Jesus. Because his resurrection paid the debt for our sin. And then he was highly exalted because of that, the Bible says in verse 10, to fill all things. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 through 11 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You say, oh, I don't believe in Jesus. You will one day. It's better that you learn to believe today and be able to bow in reverence and adoration to the Savior 
than to die in unbelief and have to bend your knee, not in adoration, but in subjection, and have to endure the wrath of God for all eternity because he gave his only son for your salvation and people spat upon it and said, I will not, I will not accept God's gift. It is not only the hope of heaven, it is the only hope of heaven. Jesus Christ, God's blessed Son. Then we see the presence given in verses 8 and 11. He says in verse 8, he gave gifts to men. And in verse 11, it starts telling the gifts that he gave. And it says he gave some apostles. The distinguishing feature of an apostle were a commission directly from Christ being a witness of the resurrection, special inspiration, supreme authority, accredited by miracles, unlimited commission to preach and to found churches, start churches. That was the credentials of an apostle. We find that in Acts chapter 1. The Apostle Paul was called an apostle, but he calls himself an apostle called out of due order. But did he see the resurrection? No, not necessarily, but he spent three years with the resurrected Christ in Arabia as he was learned of Christ, and that's why he could write half the New Testament. I'm just saying, there's not many people, there's petty people, people go around today and call themselves apostles, but they don't fit a biblical description. They just don't fit that. So it doesn't matter what you call yourself. And then prophets, preachers and expounders with the immediate influence of the Spirit and thus distinguished from just teachers. Evangelists, some say traveling missionaries. Others say those who are helped to breathe life into the church or help the church. In some cases, they need resuscitation. I, I think a church ought to be alive all the time. Amen. I mean, you, you shouldn't be, oh, come help us. No, we ought to be a blessing anytime because God is here and we're doing what God wants and God blesses a church like that. Then pastors and teachers, the word promeo means to shepherd. They're put together the shepherd pastor who teaches. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, the last sentence says a pastor ought to be apt to teach. Bishop, another name for pastor, apt to teach. Now, these two belong together. Now, here's the application. Are you taking advantage of God's provision for your walk? God provides for you to walk and has a path for your walk, and we're to walk worthy. Are you taking advantage of those things that God has given you? Uh, These pastors and teachers, pastor laymen, who is the pastor of Grandview Baptist Church. 38 plus years ago, God used me and my wife to move from Arkansas and found this church. I am no longer the pastor. Now, I know many of you come up to me and say, I'm going to call you pastor all your life. Well, that's fine. And pastor's good with that as well. But I want you to understand, I know the difference. There's just one person that God calls to lead a church, and that is the pastor. And that is Pastor Justin Lehman, and praise God for him. And I thank God for him. I was 29 years old when I started this church. He was 35 when he became the pastor. He's now 36. And sometimes people say, well, well, yeah, but that's not how you do it. Well, it doesn't matter how I did it. We got a pastor. And he is supposed to be, follow God's leadership, not my leadership, God's leadership. And by the way, he's doing a real good job of it. And God's blessing him, and I'm so grateful for him, and thank God for him. And someone says, well, I I like the way you do, you know. People say stuff like that. Hey, listen, he's 36. At 36, he towered over me in how I preached. He is so much better. God has his hand of blessing upon our pastor, and I hope we love him and appreciate him and his family. And we're there like Aaron and her holding him up. Because when we hold our pastor up, we're holding our church up. You tear down a pastor, you're you're literally tearing down your church. 
We're not saying he's perfect. I'm perfect. Anybody else is perfect. We're saying he is the man of God's choosing for this place. Let's follow our pastor, the Bible says, whose faith follow. And then the purpose of our walk is mentioned in verses 12 through 16. In verse 12, it talks about three things, the maturity, the ministry, and the multiplication. The maturity the perfecting of the saints. That means maturing, not that we ever become perfect, but the word uh, maturing or perfection means well-rounded, well-rounded. We're mature when we're well-rounded. We're not strong in this area, weak in this area. We're not good on prophecy, but bad on this, or good in here, not on that. We are a well-rounded Christian. Maturity, ministry, the work of the ministry, multiplication, edifying of the body of Christ, The word edify means to build up, hence to build up the body. And then in verse 13, it see the faith, unity of the faith, the facts, knowledge of Christ, the fullness, maturity, being all we can be in Christ and for Christ. Verse 14, we're grown up, no more children. We're grounded, not tossed about with every wind of doctrine. Against false doctrine, against fishy practices. Fishy practices. What do you mean by that? Well, the Bible says slight of men, cunning craftiness, lie in wait to deceive. Don't think that the devil only attacks a church leader outside of this building. Many a work of God has been hurt. Because a man of God, or a man pretending to be a man of God, had fishy practices. The ministry is not trying to get something out of you. Ministry is trying to put something into you. Even Christ, when he mentions about giving, he's not trying to impoverish you. He's trying to prosper you. The Bible says in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give unto your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. I'm telling you that God is not having his children to give so that we have less. He's having us to give in faith. So he can honor our faith and give us more. Give and it shall be given unto you. And that's right from the mouth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we can trust him with John 3, 16, we can trust him with Luke 38 as well. And then verse 15, we have conversation, speak the truth in love. That's how we're to talk, conversation, speak the truth in love cultivation, grown up into him in all things. And finally, here in Oregon, it's come that season to start cultivating and planting. And all those of you who planted your tomatoes a month ago have to go out and buy them again. (laughs) Cultivation, you have to learn those things. And then chief, Christ is our head. 1 Timothy 6.15, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then in verse 16, I don't have time to talk on all these, but the body, talking about his church, the bonding. The Bible says we're fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. Let me just say this. God puts you in a body of believers, but you come with your own glue. You come with your own glue. That's exactly what it's saying. Watch watch that, what it says. Compacted by that which every joint supplieth. You bring your own glue. If you don't bring your own glue to the church, You don't fit. It's what you bring that fits you. And God has gifted you to fit you in his work. And we're compacted by that which every joint, every member, 
bringeth. And we're fitted together. God does the fitting together. But if you're not bringing the glue, it's not going to work. Don't think, well, you know, it's just a miracle thing. God just didn't do it. No, no, no. God will do it with you. I was reading just this morning again about bonsai tree. God doesn't want us to be bonsai tree. He wants us to be Douglas fir Christian. I always thought a bonsai tree was a brand of tree. It is not. You can take any brand of tree and make a bonsai tree out of it. All you have to do is keep it when it's young and transplant it often enough. And every time you pull it out of the soil, you knock the soil away from the roots and you clip off the roots and you make it grow again with just a little bit of roots. And what happens? That keeps it small. So you could literally have a Douglas fir bonsai tree because you transplant it over and over and you keep cutting off the roots. Listen, find a church and stick in it. Just stick in it. Let's grow old and die together and go to heaven together. Find a church and just stick. If you're waiting for the perfect church, you'll never find it. It's just full of sinners saved by God's grace. And uh, if we wanted to critique the church, we could spend all day doing that. I could look everywhere and find something wrong. But our job is to be used of God to fit our lives together and bond together for the cause of Christ to do a work for Him. And that's true of any church. Every single church. The bonding, the bounty, the effectual working in the measure of every part. No work for God produces a bountiful harvest without many Christians working together for Christ. It's never the work of a person. It's never the work of a pastor. It's never the work of a staff. It is just many Christians rolling up their sleeves and working for Christ. Just yesterday or Friday, I was driving here and I saw several of our senior ladies out. And it is a warm day. But they're out trimming trees and planting flowers and bushes and working on them and working in the garden spots. And I thought, glory, I didn't know they had that ability. I said, ladies, when you're done, I live just right down the road. Come on. Man, using their gifts for the cause of Christ. Folks, that's what it's all about. Just letting God use us. The blessing. Well, the bonus, increase of the body. The blessing built up in love. A loving church is what God alone can give us and we enjoy from his hand. You can't manufacture a loving church. That is not something that comes from us. Boy, you put all of us in the room and start shaking us up and you you just hit a, a... nest of hornets or yellow jackets because we are all just fallen creatures saved by the grace of God but you you start having us rub shoulders with each other we're going to get friction but a loving church is a wonderful gift from God and praise God we've had that for all these years and enjoying that and just welcome and be a part of that a loving church Now, the application, are we living out our purpose, being used of Christ to increase his body, which is the church? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23 says, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all things. Now, I've gone through these verses as fast as I know how, and it has not been fast enough. But I've studied, and I want to share with you at least bits of what I studied. I think I could talk another hour and a half just on this passage of Scripture. But let me end with this. I was reading just in the last week or so uh, a story of a man who was on his deathbed who had three sons. And so he called all three sons together to say goodbye to them. Now, two of his sons were believers, and one was not. And so he talked to his two sons that were believers. They were, there were all three there. And he says to those two boys, he said, sons, 
I love you and I've always loved you. And I want you to know I'll see you in the morning. And then he looked to his son who had not trusted Christ as his Savior. And he said, son, I want you to know I love you. And I've always loved you. And I always will. And, and his son said, but dad, you, you, you didn't say you'd see me in the morning. And the father said, well, son, I, I, I wish I could. But you see, your two brothers have trusted Christ as their personal Savior, which means when, when I die and when they die, we're, we're going to be together again in the morning. In that bright and cloudless morning when the saints of God shall rise. I mean, we're going to be there. And I'm looking forward to that, son. He said, well, Dad, how come, how come I can't see you in the morning? He said, well, son, it's not up to me. It's a decision you have to make. And you have to come to that place where you realize your need of a Savior and you trust Christ as your personal Savior. And and if that were to happen, then, of course, I would see you also in the morning. And his son said, well, Dad, I want to see you in the morning. So I want to trust Christ as my personal Savior, too. And on his deathbed, he had the joy of leading his third son to Jesus Christ. Now, I say all that to say this. If I were to die today, could I say to each and every one of you, I'll see you in the morning. I'll see you in the morning. And it's going to be just fine because we're all going to be with Jesus. Or are you here and you say, Pastor, I'm afraid I might not. Pastor, I don't know. Well, if that's true, then today you could make that same decision as that third son made to trust Christ as their Savior. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I know it's been a long day. Please forgive us. We have so much to do. People have things to do and places to go. But just for this moment, could I ask if there's anyone here and you would say, Pastor, I'm not sure. I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray that you become a Christian, that you become God's child, that you know that heaven is your eternal home. I wonder if there's anyone here who'd say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, Would you just raise your hand very quickly all throughout the auditorium if there's anyone like that? God bless you. Is there anyone else that would say, Pastor, I'm not sure? I just don't know. All over the auditorium. If you want Christ as your Savior, let me tell you, He wants to save you more than you want to be saved because He died on Calvary for you. And if you would just very humbly, in your own words, say something similar to this Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I deserve to go to hell. But I trust you because you died for me and you rose from the dead. And right now I give my heart to you. I trust you as my Savior. I yield to you. Please take me to heaven when I die. And just that sweetly, you can pray, and Jesus will answer. And there's never been a seeking sinner come to the Savior, go away disappointed. I wonder if you're here and you say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. Would you slip up your hand if you prayed that prayer? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time we have together. I pray you'll bless this invitation. Lord, thank you for those who responded in faith. But Lord, now for the rest of us as Christians, would you speak to us about how we are walking worthy in the vocation of which you've called us. And Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand on our feet. Would you let God speak to your heart? Where is it that Christ
Christ has called you? What is it that Christ wants you to do? Are you walking worthy of what Christ has called you and I to do? Maybe God's spoken to your heart about getting baptized or joining the church or being a part of a body of believers. Respond as God prompts you, as God leads you. Let that be the deciding factor, the will of God for your life. you may be seated. Well, we have one short video, and then we're going to dismiss. And after that video, anyone interested in going to Leavenworth or the ones who have signed up to go to Leavenworth, I'll meet over here. It'll take us about five minutes, and we'll talk about that trip in August. It will be a wonderful trip you'll not want to miss. Let's watch this. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. We hope this morning's sermon was a blessing to you. Join us tonight at 5 for a special sermon from our junior high youth pastor, Derek Vestal. Grandview Men's Summer Softball is back this summer, and sign-ups are underway starting today. This is a tremendous opportunity to build a relationship with other men in the church, as well as an opportunity for outreach. The cost will be $40 and will include a team jersey, hat, and several weeks of games. Stop by the welcome desk in the lobby to find more information and sign up today. Our men's advance will be June 23rd and 24th. Join us for preaching by Pastor Stuart Mason and Pastor Jason Murphy, as well as food, fellowship, and games. If you would like to attend this special event, the cost is $25 and your payment can be made online or at the welcome desk following the service. Mark your calendars for our other upcoming events this summer. Vacation Bible School will be held July 10th through the 12th from 6 to 8.30 p.m. and is for children K-4 through 6th grade. If you would like to sign up and help at this event, there's a sign-up sheet available at the Welcome Desk. Kids Summer Blast will be held Wednesday nights throughout the summer, starting on June 14th. And this is for children 4 years through 5th grade. The cost is free and children will be participating in various workshops throughout the summer. Also, don't miss our Young Adult Conference with Pastor Kurt Skelly on Friday and Saturday, August 11th and 12th. The cost is $25 and includes meals, fellowship, and preaching. There will be a brief but important meeting for everyone interested in going with the Best Years Club on the Leavenworth trip. Please stay in the auditorium to meet with Brother Mutchler for a quick meeting after this morning's service. If this is your first or second time here, we want to answer your questions and get to know you. Please fill out the Connect card in the pew in front of you and bring it to guest services as you exit the auditorium. We would love to meet you and you will receive a gift card. Have a great afternoon and we'll see you tonight at 5. God bless you. You're dismissed.